you're in there, yeah. you can't change it. You either smoke drugs every day and dribble your life away, yeah. or you study, get your nut down, do yeah. some courses, get in the best physical shape. They can't take that away from you. Mm. They can't take your body away from you. Mm. I started cutting hair. Training, yeah, I just turned into a super, super fit human being. He panned the camera into me and said, say your name. And I went, Lewis Packham, you're the strongest barber in the world. I said, yeah, but what if I'm not? He went, yeah, but what if you are? I will be the strongest man in England this year, and I'm going to win that title. Welcome to the Eventful Lives podcast. I'm your host, Dodge, and I'm the founder of Bournemouth Sevens, the world's largest sports and music festival. On this podcast, I speak to fascinating people who have all lived eventful lives. If you haven't already, do us a favour, press the follow button and check us out at Dodge Woodall on Instagram, TikTok and YouTube, where we've now had over 80 million views. Lewis Packham, also known as the world's strongest barber, has an incredible story that goes from prison to the podium. Lewis goes in depth on his time in prison and how gym and fitness saved his life. This is the eventful life of Mr. Lewis Packham. Very much looking forward to this one. God, you're massive, mate. You just managed just about fit on that chair. <laughs> it's, it's a bit tight around the back. But... <laughs> Quality. Let's roll all the way back. Where did you grow up and how did you end up getting banged up for 10 years at the age of 17? I grew up in Southampton, a little place called Romsey. And it's a lovely little marketplace town. Um, very historical. And um, <clears throat> yeah, they weren't used to someone unhinged like me at that age. I was... I always sort of outgrew my tank. I always want. I knew there was more out there. I didn't know how to obtain it, um, and unfortunately, you know, through behavioural problems and ADHD and everything else diagnosed, um, I found the the wrong pathway, and I found that there was more out there. Yeah. But I didn't expect it to be what it was. So, mm. yeah, for me, growing up in a place like that was was very confusing, mm. um, and it was a contrast of my life that. It kind of molded me in a way that it shouldn't have. But so you say confusing. What was confusing growing up in in down in Southampton? Everything's everything's so slow and so everyone knows everyone. Um, I, I was very talented sport football. I always wanted to do more. Always felt like I could offer more. I had a bit more personality and loudness and disruption in the classroom. I was I was always trying to do more, which mm. obviously people don't like because when you know yourself when you. When you step out of a comfort zone, mm. people don't want to see you do yeah, anything. Yeah. People um, don't want to see you succeed. They don't want to see you. Yeah, yeah. You know, you've know, you got to get a job, finish your GCSEs, yeah. follow this pathway, yeah. just have enough money to get by. Mm. You know, they don't want to see you do anything. Mm. So so what was your kind of world at the age of 13, 14, 15? Were you disruptive at school? Were you causing problems? Were you problems at home? Yeah, so I was medicated, ADHD, um, from a very young age, probably from about five, six years old. I was diagnosed with ADHD and tics. Um, outburst and impulsive behavior, um, obviously hyperactivity. I really struggled with the academic side, but um, I was just extremely intelligent and bright and switched on, knew all the answers to everything, um, had no um, no issues, but it's just how I delivered it. You know, like I was constantly disrupting the other class classroom um, from even answering a question. Mm. I'd try and make everyone laugh, yeah. but uh, physically and sport-wise, I was heading in a, a mm. really serious direction with football and um, 
and athletics and mm. one yeah and the thing you just mentioned there ticks what's ticks ticks is on the spectrum of Tourette's um you know some are verbal outbursts um it all depends on your mood excitement like if new people walk in the room i get really really excited and then i just start randomizing like impulse little i make these little um siren noises and stuff every now and then so go on <laughs> it's got to be it just takes moment. over yeah. Yeah, yeah so while i'm in the barber shop it um it just comes out okay um, so what I get sort excited. of noise like kind of what sort of noise like oh, i can't do it like, not, you know but what is it like, like a high-pitched like... siren yeah okay little it... whistles and okay and it just yeah. comes out of the blue you don't know you're doing it i know it's coming i can yeah. feel it coming um and then it just comes out the more excited i am the worse it gets okay um, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna try to get you excited <laughs> as possible in here but yeah i make i make a lot of jokes um, okay. i'm very aware of it's like my um my senses heighten. Yeah. I feel like my pupils dilate and I'm just switched on, bang, bang, bang. Maybe mm. that's why I do so well in like barbering and stuff because yeah. the engagement with the client is spot on. Yeah. I remember every single detail about every client. Yeah. So that person. That's a good skill. Yeah, for yeah. Us. I never knew I even had that skill. Yeah. So yeah, I guess it's it's kind of like the whole ADHD thing. You know, we were put in a box as a kid. Yeah. We were given Ritalin and Concerta and all these different trialing med medicines and, you know, seeing how he reacts to this. But the funny story is I didn't even know I had ADHD. My mum took me to this this doctor, mm. this mental health doctor. He put me in the playroom. Little did I know, that's when he was watching me. Yeah. When I sat in front of him, I was like this. Yeah. Because I knew yeah. he was analysing yeah, me. So, okay. um, he was watching me while I wasn't being analysed. So yeah. it was quite equal. So it's attention <clears throat> deficit disorder. Attention, you've got ADD yeah. and then you've got ADHD. So attention deficit hyperactive disorder. So... That's what I was diagnosed with. Okay. There um, must be loads of kids. You know, like growing up, like <coughs> I was the disruptive one in the class, always making people laugh. But back when I was there, it wasn't even known about it. I wasn't even known no. about it, okay. yeah. Um, it was quite a, it was like this phase and, you know, they were just, they had to put a title on these kids, including myself, because the behavior was unacceptable, couldn't be controlled through, you know, certain reward systems or incentive schemes at school. Yeah. It was like, you just had to go off and do something. Um, yeah. I tried to control mine. Um, a woman who's in my life, Miss Sherburn, she's my old teacher. We'll get on to her later with the, you know, the school talks and stuff. But yeah. she was my PE teacher at school, yeah. and we've reconnected in life. And she's Brilliant. she's pushed me on to the the talking journey in schools and stuff. So we can cover that as well. Yeah. But yeah, she really tried with sport yeah. to keep that energy, mm. you know, contained and stuff. And um, just I just was destined for something. Yeah, but. And so 15, 16 GCSEs? GCSEs, um, medication got me through it. Um, I was a bit zombified really by it all. I used to take the meds and just be like. Yeah, what sort of meds? Ritalin and Concerta XL. They were they had an 18 milligram tablet, a little yellow one, and then a 36 milligram. And I used to take multiple doses a day. And then I used to have to go to the lunch hatch at school and take the top up like. yeah. I was just wild, mate. Was just... And what was it? What would that do? Just calm me down? Yeah, it's a, um, I can't remember what to call it. It's, it's kind of like a speed, but yeah. in, in people that have got this. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure you're not wanting speed. At, no, so to... it does the opposite effect. Oh, it does the opposite effect. So, yeah, okay. so if someone without the diagnosis would take it, yeah. they would go up. Okay. Um, I take it and it, um, yeah, it's like the opposite effect. Okay. Yeah, it's a very weird feeling. Okay. Um, I've had the same experience on other drugs as well, mm. recreational drugs as well. It does mm. exactly the same thing. Other people go yeah. off and chat, chat, chat. Yeah. Me, I just go completely blank. Yeah, yeah so okay. yeah, um, tried to control it, got through my GCSEs, did okay. Um, but I was just fighting all the time, all the time. Well, at school, fighting? At school, out of school? Outside of school, okay. 
just constant on the football pitch when I was playing Saturday football. Yeah. I was just a I was just rogue. Yeah. Um I'd been exposed to violence from a young age. Um it was an answer to everything. My dad was an extremely imposing violent individual, so I kind of got normalized and desensitized to it all. Um yeah. You said you were exposed to violence at a young age. <clears throat> Give me an example. Was it around your old man at home? Yeah, domestic violence, um, violence around like confrontation. You know, I remember one incident when he, he had this big pickup truck and he parked it over two bays and a man said something and he said to the guy, if you're still there by the time I come out and done my shopping, I said, you're going to find out what I'm about. And I watched it unfold. Yeah. And I thought, how is it? I thought that was so cool as a young boy. Like, yeah. He just told this man to wait there. Yeah. And if you're man enough to be there when I come out, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm experienced that. So obviously as a young boy, mm. you try and emulate your father, you try and copy him. And yeah, he was very, very rigid and rough and like just a stern bastard basically. Because mm. you at the moment, I thought were you coming in at 17, 18, 19 stone? Um, no, I'm 20, 21, 22 Is it 21 stone. stone? Yeah. Is it 130 <laughs> odd kilos, yeah. So. Um, of not, my pure muscle. What were you like back then? Were you training back then? I was uh, athletic, football. Yeah. I've always been lean, always been ripped. Yeah. Um, it, you know, people might watch this and think, ah, oh. but I was always the annoying kid at school that was fast and yeah. good at football, good at sport. And strong. Strong. Yeah. Used to be able to push all my mates over. Mm. And whenever we wrestled, you know, my older brothers and stuff, I'd always, always win. So, how many brothers you got? Um, we got. Uh, three brothers, four sisters. So, and where were you in the pecking order? I'm middle of the pack. Middle, okay. Yeah. And were you the hardest of the lot? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm the yeah. hardest. Yeah. <laughs> just get that. I've in. always if been. If they're yeah. listening, just get that in. There. I've always been the one that, if there's a problem, I'm always sorted out. Okay. Um, even to this day, you know, like I've got a lot, I've got a lot of sisters, and you know, sisters have problems with yeah. you know so and so. So, when there's something going on, I make sure that they know who I am. Mm. Um, you know, it might be the partners, it might be mm. people on Facebook. But I just drop a little comment on there and just yeah. let them know that because yeah. we've all got different surnames yeah. from different dads, so I let them know who they're connected to, and yeah. it usually sorts it out. So then they have a look at your phone. No, it literally says, <laughs> it says comment removed. Yeah. Comment. <laughs> Don't blame them. <laughs> it's happened them. a few times. <laughs> so just going back, domestic <clears throat> violence. What does that actually mean? Domestic violence in um, your household. Household violence with your yeah. mum or with yeah, against my mum, against my other siblings. So um, I was young. You know, a lot of it didn't really absorb. But, well, you think it doesn't absorb. And then obviously later on in life, you experience the, you know, the afterthoughts. You mm. go, oh, shit. Yeah, I went through that when yeah. I was a kid. You know, getting locked in a house and police coming in and um, fire extinguishers going off, you know, with the dogs and stuff. Yeah. It was mental. Um, but, yeah, knowing that my mum went through that, you know, my relationship with my father now is completely different almost yeah. non-existent because yeah. i've grown into a different man and i've realized the way that you treat people can have consequences and losing contact with me as a son you know he's proud of me he's done all this you know i came out of prison and you know we'll go on to mm. that but you lose you lose your son for the way that you treated my mum so yeah. and what age were you when you realized that your old man was hitting your mum around were you thinking i can't i'm not big enough to do anything right now but well, I'm, was, I'm clocking it it was one different day. yeah because we, we, they were separated um the violence a lot of violence happened while i was young um and i'm what sort of age you know up until about four or five years okay. old but my siblings are a lot older than me mm. so they tell they used to t you know when you think people are telling you bad things about your dad you know because yeah. i've got a different dad yeah and you don't believe them um 
I'm fortunate enough to have an amazing stepfather. He's been in my life since that age. Mm. And he took us all on, and he's an incredible man. So, what's his name? Um, Terry. Terry. Yeah, he's, an, he's an incredible man. So, so, did your old man leave the house? He at, had to. Yeah, police took him away, and we all got put into um, not like a witness protection, but we all got protected and taken away, um, and sort of hidden with family, scattered around the country, this and that. So, um, I was very young then, didn't really know what was going on, and then when we could return back to the the home when it was safe, we did. So, I didn't see my dad for a long time after that. What was he? What was he actually doing then? For that, that's it. That's serious to take all the kids he's away a, and everything. Yeah, he's a he's a whiskey addict. So he's, right, okay. So yeah. as soon as he was tucking into that, he was stopped. Just yeah, I've seen it. I, up until recently, I tried to reconnect with him just to let him know, you know, about some of the accomplishments. And I saw a side to him, and I just dropped him out immediately. Um, not for me. What dropped him out of your life, or dropped yeah, him immediately? I tried, and I saw it. I, you know, I felt the tone. I saw the edge in him, and I. Yeah, see you later. Yeah, okay. okay. I'm a strong man. There's nothing he can do to me. So. Yeah. And where's he based? He's in the New Forest. Okay. So that's what part of where I grew up as well. So yeah, okay. Because my nan went to court, got custody, and I spent some time with my dad, you know, once or twice a month. So, yeah. And how old were you when you were <clears> spending time with your old man after this all happened? Yeah, right up until I was probably about 10 years old. Mm. Um, I was really into my football as a young kid. He would take me to some games. Um, requiring they weren't too early on a Sunday morning and he could he had like this little breathalyzer. I remember him having one at home. Um well we didn't even have a home. It was a caravan. Mm. That's he lived in his whole life. Yeah. And he would use the breathalyzer and if it was still red he couldn't take me to football. So right. yeah. The whiskey dominated every aspect of his life. When you when you were in the house and you saw the whiskey <clears> bottle <throat> there and you knew he was tucking the whiskey, how did that make you feel? Just put you on edge, mate. Yeah. yeah. Even when I uh, used to go around to his caravan in the forest, it was always whiskey bottles around the table. And, you know, he'd like cigarette burn holes up the armchair where yeah. he'd fallen asleep. Um, but for my mum to let me go to that environment, she's trying to protect me from the man that he is, but also allow me to realise who my father is. Yeah. So I respect her for that massively. Yeah, yeah. Massive respect. So moving on then, 16, 17, <laughs> tell me about the build-up to that that day, night yeah, so started drinking, mm. believe it or not. Um, the most poisonous thing known to man, yeah. alcohol. Yeah. Um, and it just brought my dad out of me, I think. And the violence was was effortless, so easy just to... I didn't even argue with people. It was just physical violence straight away. Any opportunity I got. Um, and I would thrive off it. You know, waking up in the morning, looking down at my hands. My mum would see my knuckles separated or whatever. It happened multiple times. And she'd say, Lewis, you're going to end up in, in prison for a long time. You know, I didn't listen. Um, get back on the beer again, you know, play football with the boys, then go out on the beer, all that sort of culture. Mm. Um, <clears throat> had some big opportunities. Went out to Sweden and played in the Youth World Cup um, in Gothenburg. Came home. Not long after that, we were on this sort of every Friday at the pub sort of vibe as young kids, you know, getting in pubs where we could. And then there was a beer festival that came up um, called the Beggar's Fair. And uh, we just got so hammered. Um, where was that? In Romsey. Okay. And there was this crunk juice. I don't know if you remember crazy drunk juice. Mm -hmm. And it got banned not yeah. long after my case. And um, I was just out looking for it. And, you know, the... Unfortunately, we, we crossed paths, me and these, this group of men, and yeah, it just, 
just went off. How did it kick off? Were you there? Were you at the age seventeen? Were you were you looking for egg? Yeah, I was. Yeah, okay. I was goading the whole night. Okay. The police reports that came out um, from I actually know the police officer's name. He's still about actually. Um, was Lewis was goading? Lewis was looking. I stopped Lewis multiple times that evening and told him to you know calm down a bit. I remember it all like yeah. a big build up. Um, had a couple of little scuffles here and there with other people that I knew. It was busy. There was people everywhere. And then I made it all the way till closing time, all the way till the end of the night. Just started walking home with my group of mates. And I was just wired, wired differently. Um, and then we come across this this group and started arguing, you know. And um, I, got, I got hit from the side, um, from this side. And... I just let loose. I just didn't stop. Um, the guy was knocked out. Um, a couple of people got, a couple of other people got hurt. A couple of GBHs, and then the attempted murder was um, just stamping on his head. Didn't let him up. So yeah, it was serious. Um, you know, I don't condone that at all. And if I could take that part back, I would. I wouldn't change the defending myself part. You know, it was a fight. But as soon as he hit the floor, I would take that bit back. Yeah. How many was there of you and how many of them? It was just me and my little brother. Um, how old was your brother at the time? He's, he's a year younger than me. Okay. So we, I handed him my phone and my wallet. I knew what was going to happen. And uh, yeah, and, and I just let loose on them. There was four of them. Um, so there was a girl that got hurt as well. She broke her leg. So yeah, trying to split it all up. Did was, you just blackout did you see red mist Can well you they say you know that whole like cliche saying of i blacked out i didn't know mm. what i was doing i guess i guess you're kind of in like a, a really fast autopilot you know your decisions are being made for you immediately um the way i've learned to control that feeling and explain that feeling is if you stand on a plug in a in your house with a bare foot if you don't swear or mm. you know you're doing a good job like mm. controlling that immediate bang do you know what I mean? Stand on that plug. How do you know what's going to happen next? Do you throw your phone? Do you hit something? You know, and it's a really intense, um, like gravitating feeling. It just absorbs every part of you and you just become something else. It's hard to explain. I do believe it's in, it's in most of us, not all of us. It's fight or flight. It's that standard fight or flight mm. response. And I chose to fight. Um, and I know that's, that's still in me this, you know, today, that feeling still in me. It's about, learning, growing, controlling that emotion mm. and that feeling. What happened that night? Was it because it was a CCTV cameras with the old bill there? Did people see it? Yeah, so many witnesses, 20-odd witnesses, cameras. Um, I got mit mitigating um, action circumstances, which is up until a point there was reasonable retaliation, if that makes sense. And then obviously I took it way too far. Um, so, you know, it's six of one, half a dozen of the other until a certain point. Yeah. Then it become unlawful. So, um, you know, everything that happened to me after that point was very deserving. Yeah. What happened that evening? Did you get nicked that evening? Got nicked on the spot. Yeah, yeah I was. I wasn't um, far away from him. He was pronounced. I think he was pronounced dead at scene. They resuscitated him immediately. He got brought back two or three times, um, and then spent a while in hospital. But I was tasered on the scene and put in the the wagon and they actually velcroed me sprayed me with the 
pepper spray, everything. It was it was a proper mess. Wow. And then from that point, I was incommunicado. That's a a stage in an arrest where forensics are involved. I didn't have any water in the cell. You know, they lifted my nails and scraped inside of my cheeks and everything. So that's the first time I've been nicked. So it was, mm. it was quite an overwhelming feeling. And then I remember the interviews and the police being so nice to me, you know, offering me food and this and that. I had a fractured hand, fractured foot and an eye socket damage as well. So they took me to the hospital on these um, decuffs, like long chains. Mm. And um, I just remember thinking that this, is this normal? You know, why are they doing this to me? Why are they being so nice to me? Obviously they're looking at me like a kid yeah. that's done something really serious. Um, they have an uh, obligation to make sure you're, you know, okay. But then the, then the hammer came down and they told me what was happening and it was scary. Was that, that evening, did they let you sleep it off? No sleeping it off, man. No, no it, it was, I remember being woken up <clears throat> in the cell two or three times, rattled in interviews, you know. I was just speaking, just, yeah. I gave them everything they wanted and... To put your hands up straight away. Yeah, yeah. Like, there was no denial. I had blood everywhere. Yeah. My shoes were soaked. Yeah. I was stood in the guy's blood while I was, you know, committing mm. the offence. So I, I knew I was seriously in, like fucked. What was the moment when they had to? You had to speak to your mum. Yeah, um, she came up to the station after about forty-eight or seventy-two hours. They had a couple of extensions from the court. <clears throat> And my mum, uh, I remember it was a glass panel and I couldn't speak. And I put my hand on the glass and yeah, I didn't see her. After that process, it, it felt like I didn't see her until I was 25, but I did obviously. But the person who she saw there up against that glass was, that boy was lost. He was gone. She lost her boy. Yeah. And it was very hard to watch that. And it was a decision that I made. Um, but yeah, the emotion, man, it, it really, really took over, mm. took over her. Watching my mum in that much pain was very, very difficult. And it, um, it ignited something in me. So, yeah, it was powerful. How long was it when the incident happened for you to get in, in court to say, right, Lewis <clears throat> Packham, you've got 10 years? Oh, man, that was like a year. Um, I was, I went to court. On the it was on the Friday Saturday I went to court on the Tuesday, said my name, immediately remanded. So I was in the station. It felt like for ages, but it was about two or three days, and then I was remanded in custody because of the severity of the crime, and then I was on a remand centre, which is like an unconvicted side of the prison. What prison? Uh, Reading. Mm. Uh, shut down now. It was a juvenile side as well. So um, YOI juvenile. Uh, they call them, I was a pot cat, um, which is a category A, potential category A, but you can only be categorized after a certain mm. age as well. Mm. So I was, was a cell with red bricks around the outside and um, wasn't allowed a cellmate. Um, two man unlocked for a little bit just to make sure that I was settled in all right. It was very strange. I didn't even understand it all. I kind of learned prison every day as I went. You know, it wasn't something that you're educated on. And um, yeah, obviously eventually they see that you made a mistake. You're just a lad. Mm. You want to get on in the gym and you want to do this. So then you get um, sentenced. So it was about 10 months, eight or 10 months. 
and then you go you go back and forth to court all the time on the sweat boxes. Yeah, it's a big experience. When you were on remand, obviously you're chatting to people in there. Did you have any idea on roughly how long you would get? Oh, mate! So everyone's a prison expert. Everyone's yeah. a everyone's a solicitor in prison, mm. right? So. Yeah, my mate did that. He got five years. Yeah. Don't worry, you'll be all right. He, he only got three. Yeah. And then they're like, oh, is it your first offense? Yeah, you'll be out by the weekend. Like, yeah, yeah no one had a fucking clue. But yeah. you've got to take in, there's a lot of factors with sentencing. Mm. You've got uh, impact on the community. Mm. It's like a ripple effect. Community impact, uh, previous crimes. So if it was in the center of London, where there's stabbings and murders yeah. going on all the time, not saying it would have been lessened, yeah. but I probably wouldn't have got double figures. Yeah. But because it's in such a small, impactful, you know, community, yeah. you, you've got to be made example of. Yeah. The press get older, yeah, and they chew you up. But um, yeah, everyone was saying five sixes. So there was one person I remember getting rid of my duty solicitor and getting these um, London lot in, and I remember the guy sitting me down um, in the probation solicitor visit room, mm. and he said, "You're getting double figures, minimum nine, but you're going to get a life sentence for this." And that's when it hit home. And my mum actually, the day before sentencing, my mum, we were speaking about this the other day. She said, I think you're going to get 10 years. So, yeah. When you were in court at that moment and you're sitting there waiting for the judge to say what you're going to get, what went through your head when he actually slammed it down and said, you got 10? Oh, mate, it's, uh, it was a bit of a drawn out day, really. It's like a blur. You're in the holding cell. You, you wear your shirt, you know, you're trying to yeah. make a, <laughs> make an impression yeah. to the judge, like you haven't made one already. Mm -hmm. And um, your body's letting out these weird scents and you're sweating from places you didn't know you could sweat. Um, you're thinking things that you didn't know you could think. And I'd been on remand so long that it was a relief when I knew, you know, I knew what I was doing, if that makes sense. Um, when he said the words... You know, after, you know, he goes through all the uh, concurrent and consecutive sentences. There was there was four sentences in total. And at first I thought, yeah, shit. He started around the 17-year mark. And then he obviously took off my guilty plea, 33% off. Then he works it down. Then he runs this one concurrent, which means it runs alongside your serving sentence. Mm. So you're serving two sentences at once. Mm. So, yeah, it was around 13 and a half years. And then got it down to double figures didn't take my remand time. So we started from that point. So he didn't accept. It was a different judge in Bournemouth Crown. Mm. I said I know Bournemouth quite yeah. well. <laughs> it was Bournemouth Crown because the jury on one of the GBHs I went to trial on, and one of the juries knew about the case. So they moved me straight to Bournemouth Crown on mm. that day um, because it was a class of interest. And um, yeah, it was mental. The judge didn't accept my plea bargain. So a plea bargain is your opportunity in your first court appearance to take full responsibility for maximum credit off your sentence. And he didn't accept the judges in Southampton's um, reasoning for the plea bargain. So there was a little bit of dispute back and forth. He wanted to impose IPP, mm. which is a 99-year term, um, which was brought in by David Plunkett, the blind politician. Mm. And it's now unlawful and inhumane, so they've abolished that. But 99-year tariff is what they were pushing for. Pre-sentence report from probation was IPP. And um, I was just scared. So when I got 10, I was relieved. Yeah. Because there was a lot of talk of this IPP. And some of the lads on the wing were saying, if you get an IPP, you're fucked. Mm. 
oh, you ain't coming out because they don't let you out. There's yeah. people that are 15, 16 years over tariff. So to get a double figure sentence, I knew where I was. So I just got my nut down and got on with it. And what year was this when you got sentenced? I got sentenced in 2011. So yeah, it was, uh, I was in uh, Dorchester prison. I was the youngest, I was the youngest inmate in Dorchester. Mm. I was wearing bright orange jumpsuit because they had to, I, I guess now looking back, it would be to cover their own asses because yeah. I'm around a lot of long-termers. It was to cover the fact that I was so young but I'd been starred up as a youngster. Yeah. So I'd been pushed into an adult system straight away just so I could settle easier. The mm. YO system was fucking wild. So because they knew I was in there for a while, they wanted me to settle. So they pushed me up to the adult um, the adult regime and put me in this orange jumpsuit. I remember it clear as day. Mm. And what was that feeling like being 17, knowing you're in with adults? <clears throat> yeah, I was, I was, stuff, I was 18, 18, 19 18, by yeah. then, yeah. yeah. So... Do you know what? I learned a lot. A very chilled, very chilled out lifers. Um, reading the papers every day. Got their very weird routine, very weird mannerisms. It's not like you see in the films where everyone's out stabbing yeah, yeah. each other. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, yeah. That's more the YO side mm. or the gang side. Mm. But um, yeah, lifers are quite chilled. Very, a lot of them are very influential. Very, You can learn a great deal from a lifer. Mm. You know, some of them are 22, 23 years deep. Um, with no end so you learn a lot how many years did you actually do I did six did six yeah. okay that's one for the remand and then after yeah. the ten okay who was in the courtroom that day when you were given a ten my mum um, I remember the the noise when the sentence dropped um, my girlfriend at the time she was my childhood sweetheart sort of thing she was there um, the victims the victims family Public gallery, press. Um, yeah, it was heavy. What noise was it? Just a, I felt the energy drop, the emotion came out, um, like gasp. Yeah, sucked the life out of me. Mm. And I went cold. It's the coldest I've ever felt. Just chilled straight away. So I kind of felt my legs go. Mm. And luckily there was two, two sales staff there that keep you up. So, yeah. Wow. When you were in that situation then and you can see the victims, could you look them in the eye? No. So some of them chose to have the curtain. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, mm. where they cover themselves. Um, two of the guys, not the one who was seriously injured, but two of the guys that were ABH um, were laughing at me. I remember them laughing, but um, they they were the reason, the main reason that the whole thing happened. And unfortunately, the guy who came worse off wasn't actually that involved at the start. It was the ones that were, you know, goading it. I won't say their names, but mm. it was a shame. Mm. Have you seen them since? No. So <clears throat> I've seen one since coming off parole. Um, he used to be an old friend of mine, a bit older. He's my brother's age. And he was the only person that went no comment in the interviews. And I've shook his hand. We've made peace. Um, but in terms of the main victims, no, there was there was a keep apart thing. I came out on a big exclusion zone, and you're not allowed any any involvement with any victims or victims' family indirectly or directly. So, what year did you come out? I started my day release process in 2016, so would have been towards 2016, 2017. Mm. 
Um, Would you ever apologise to the victims? Yeah, I tried with um, restorative justice, which is a um, a charity that come into prisons and work with. So, say your house got burgled yep. and you wanted to know why they burgled or why they went in your kid's room yep. or something, you can meet that person across the table yep. in a controlled environment. So, I tried that twice in my time and both times were rejected. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's that not, was when you were in prison. While I was in and while I was on day release, yep. um, probation don't um, push anything like that at all. Their main role is to protect and keep you away, whereas prison tried to, tried to, um, not squash it, but test the waters, see what yeah. it's going to be like. Because as you can imagine, there's a lot of repercussions when someone comes out of prison, mm. a lot of retaliation usually in yeah. certain crimes. So they would sort of do that to test the waters, but no one connected with restorative justice. So mm. It's interesting, isn't it? Because what's gone on with you there is like a 17-year-old, 18, 19. I'm not saying maybe to the extent, but it happens all around the country on a Friday, Saturday night. Yeah, it's quick. Yeah. You know, you go out in a town like Bournemouth, yeah. have a few drinks. Yeah. How many lads are kicking 10 bales of shit yeah. out of each other? Yeah. It's luck, just pure luck. Yeah. Um, there's a new law in now that you can be convicted on CCTV alone. So you, the cameras are becoming so clear now yeah. that you don't even need a, a witness mm. or, or a victim. So let's say you and your mate have a scuffle. Yeah. You can actually go to prison for that. Right, because of the CCTV. Because of the CCTV. So it'd be a um, CPS mm. uh, trial and conviction. So. Do you reckon the way you were growing up and the violence you had inside you came from your dad. Yeah, yes, I am. I am partly my father, so yeah. That's the monster. That's the animal. Yeah, you can't change that. It's DNA. Yeah. Um, the way he responded with alcohol, that's in me. Yeah. You know, I, I don't drink. I haven't drunk in, apart from the old Christmas party. I haven't drunk in three years. Yeah. So I know it's there. And what was it like in prison for you? Were you just thinking, my God, this has all happened. I got <clears throat> pissed up. I wasn't going on that path, that journey. I took the violence too far. What were you like for those six years in prison? Prison was a, it was an extremely eye-open environment. Everything's concentrated. Everything's dangerous. Um, lots of boring, lots of time to yourself. Mm. And I thought to myself, right, I've got to make some choices here. A, I'm hungry mm. and I need some extra food. Yeah. And B, I don't want to sit in this cell and not get on with anyone. And I started cutting hair and bringing people, you know, together. Mm. And I was getting paid in mackerel tins and tuna and noodles. <laughs> so I was eating that. I was actually eating five meals a day. Yeah. And uh, because the slop in there is, I don't know if you've heard stories about the porridge, mm. but it's it's non-edible. Yeah. Some of it's catastrophic. Yeah. But um, which is rightly so. We're at the bottom of the food chain. So yeah. But yeah, survival kicked in. Fitness started doing cell workouts. I've done the insanity DVDs. I don't know if you've ever seen that mm. stupid advert that comes up on tele shopping. But I've done insanity about thirty times, and I got heavily into circuit training and fitness. Some of the PEIs that I met along the way were ex special forces, Royal Marine commandos, and. I was addicted to fitness mm. and it channeled my brain. It stopped them, that ADHD, that nervous energy, anxiety. Um, it helped a lot with mental health and working alongside cutting hair, getting paid in fish, training, rest, a lot yeah. of time. In, yeah, I just turned into a super, super fit human being mm. and I thrived off it. 
and I did really well in prison. I had a really, really, really positive prison experience towards the end, if that's even possible. So it's an amazing thing to say, isn't it? You've got to make <laughs> yeah. the most out of yeah. it, mate. You know, yeah. you're you're in there. Yeah. You can't change it. You either smoke drugs every day and yeah. take smack and heroin and spice and dribble your life away, yeah. or you study, get your nut down, do yeah. some courses, get in the best physical shape. They can't take that away from you. Mm. They can't take your body away from you. Mm. So, you know, let's say you've had a scrap on the wing and you're down the seg, mm. you may as well work out. Yeah. You may as well keep your mind going. May mm. as well read some books. Mm. Don't just sit there banging the door, screaming at the govs, mm. knocking your food over every time it comes through the door. That's what people are like. Mm. They haven't got that strong enough mentality to think, right, I put myself in this position. You've got to accept it, stop resisting, stop being denial. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Did you have tear-ups in prison? Yeah, of course. Tear-ups are part and parcel. Um, I got quite well known for being good at tear-ups in terms of mm. bending people up. And mm. yeah, I, I tried not to fight a lot. I, was, I wasn't I was scared of fighting again, you know, hitting someone and them hitting their heads or stuff like that. But I preferred to grapple and grab older people and just have control of that person because mm. you don't know what they've got on their waistband. Mm. You know, I was in some heavy nicks as well. So, you know, Portland was one of the worst I've been in for a long time. Down in Weymouth, down, down on the yeah. end of the coast, yeah. yeah. So you know, everyone was stabbing each other in there. So it was nice to um, be capable physically. Some of the guys in there, it was, you know, if I'm having a scrap, it was like fighting a toddler. Yeah. So I was so well built and so fit that it didn't matter what was happening. I could have control of their, you know, grab hold of their wrists or pin them down or put them in a nice chokehold mm. and and not get stabbed up. Yeah. Um, but yeah, toe to toe with someone many times mm. and over. Phones, yeah. um, things coming in, trying to dictate the uh, politics of the wing. Someone new comes on the wing, tries to take over. Like you got, you got two, two to four phones on a prison wing. Yeah, you got 120 inmates, and you got 45 minutes to use them. Right. So the mathematics don't add up. Yeah. That's why there's a big mobile phone problem in prison. Yeah. A lot of the time, it's for drugs and moving stuff around and bank details and stuff like that. But many times it's to speak to their kids and family. Mm. And, you know, it costs for a mobile, it costs a pound a minute mm. to call someone in prison. And you get seven pounds a week for working in prison. So Is that what you get seven quid for seven, working in prison? Well, okay. seven to twelve, depending on your behaviour. But I was in the gym most of my prison time. So I was a gym orderly. Yeah. And um, you know, we would get most you could get was probably about fifteen quid. Mm. That's the most I've seen. So in a working prison, <clears throat> prisons are designed where the officers unlock the doors and the prisons run the prison. They clean the clothes, they cook the food, they clean the wings. It's it's a sufficient yeah. like business module, do you know what I mean? And you pay those prisoners tuppence mm. and yeah, that's the way prisons are run. So how are you getting out? They're paying you seven quid or 15 <clears throat> quid. Where, where's that going? They're giving you cash to go in No, there no, it goes on, it, your, uh, goes on your monies. You yeah. get like a prisoner sheet, Okay, a, like a canteen sheet. Yeah. And it, on the top, it will say pack them. A8531CE spends available £15. Yep. And then you've got loads of like chocolate, sweets, tuna tins. And that's how debts are paid in prison as well. Yeah. So you would get your sheet. So say I give someone, you know, some drugs or something. Yeah. Next week on your sheet, you give me £10 worth of, of blah, 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 blah. Chocolate yeah. or that's how it works. Yeah. Tobacco or. So DHL yeah. would run the canteen on the Tuesday and Friday, canteen day. DHL? DHL, yeah, the company, they distribute. What, DHL was in DHL? Yeah, yeah. The, well, they're running the canteens. They're the, well, all the, all the boxes and all the receipts and stuff is all DHL. <laughs> so they sort of send it all in, in sealed packaging. Yeah. Everyone's locked away on a Friday. 
they do all their prayers, mosques and all that sort of stuff. And then they open up and you come out and get your canteen with your ID card and it stops people getting their stuff stolen off mm. them. So, Tell me about how rife drugs are in prisons. Yeah, so I was unfortunate enough to be in prison when the spice wave came in. Mm. You've all seen the videos online. What actually is spice? Spice started as a artificial um, cannabis. Mm. It was a... Uh, non-synthetic or synthetic substance. Mm. I can't remember what it is, but basically couldn't be picked up on a MDT test, which is the mandatory drug testing. And because the components would change all the time, yep. they would use it and make you go high, make you you know feel all faint. But I know crackheads that have smoked crack for 30, 40 years that won't touch spice. Right. It was, it's a right. serious drug. And I've seen, seen two or three people die in front of mm. me on it as well. So... Um, it was a Jim Orderly, rest his soul, called Keith, heroin addict, vodka addict. And he smoked his whole life, injected his whole life, became a Jim Orderly, got in, got fit, got in shape. You know, he had bad mental health, wouldn't stop mopping floors, bless him, the poor bastard, but smoked this spice once, mate, and he dropped. And uh, yeah, he died in the cell. Can you can you clop, Lou, when you're in there again? He's definitely on spice. Oh, mate. He's on crack. Do you want to see on... me walk around town centres? Yeah. Spot it a mile off. I can you smell can. it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's a totally different, totally different feeling what it makes them, you know, they, it, um, so part of it, which I learned was they actually used part of the spice chemical mm. in large carp ponds, you know, the koi yeah, carp in, yeah, yeah. in um, Hong Kong. Yeah. And they scatter the feed along the top of the water. And the fish eat it, and then they come up, and that's how they count how many fish are in that water. Is that... So it numbs the fish, yeah. makes them go locked in, but keeps them alive. Yeah. So when you see someone spiced up, they smoke it. They're they're there, but they can't. You know, like ketamine. Yeah. They can't do anything. You're floating like you're, you're just you're flat. Yes, yeah, yeah, like slumped. Yeah. Um, so that's what it does. But you take too much, you don't come back from that, or you get serious brain damage. So. Can you see why people are using constantly in drugs just to get through the time? Yeah, so there's this old rule that if you if you get high for a day, you lose a day. You know, they smoke their smoke their sentence away. All these yeah. different phrases, but I've never been into it, mate. Yeah. Yeah. I see the the dirty like their fingernails and the dirt. Yeah, yeah. it's not that. for me, mate. And what about heroin in the prisons? Yeah, brown's big in there. Yeah. Um, you can smell it. It's like tuna when it's been cooked up. So that's why it gets a nickname fish in some places. Um, yeah, it stinks, mate. It's disgusting. Um, you know what it does to people. Mm. Being on heroin doesn't cause a problem. It's when people can't get it. Yeah. The body starts to eat away at itself. So And people do mad stuff when they need it. <sighs> mad stuff, mate. Yeah. Fucking hell. They'll you know, you can get people run hits on people and stuff for bits of bobby. So yeah. it's a bad drug. Did you ever think when you're in there again? Are you constantly thinking, I've got to have my wits end about me, I've got to watch my back the whole time? Or did you feel comfortable <clears> in there? Obviously, you're a big man and people yeah. knew not to mess with you. But It wasn't like that as such. You know, the way I explain the whole size thing in prison, yeah. there's some dangerous people in prison, mm. seriously you know, capable people yeah. and people that don't give a fuck. Yeah. And the bigger you are, the quicker they're going to stab you. So, yeah. you know, you have to be respectful of that. Mm. Some of the hardest bastards I know are little wiry 10-stone scousers. Yeah. Um, so size ain't size ain't nothing. Yeah. It means when it comes down to it, you've got more of a chance of maybe getting out of that situation. Yeah. But let's say someone of my power and size, they don't want to fight you. Yeah. Why would they? Mm. It's risk for them. You know, yeah, they might get a lucky punch in. They're going to get you while you're soaping your face up in the showers or you've got the head and shoulders over your head, you know. 
they're getting you when you're vulnerable, mm. naked at your you know, worst position. Mm. Um, so showers is where people, big lads usually get, you know, assaulted. Um, you don't want to fight a, a lad when he's got his trainers done up and he's just come back from the gym and he's, yeah. you know, he's pumped he's ready, up. Yeah. You don't want to fight him then. You want to fight him when he's washing his eyes or his face. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I wouldn't say size. I'd say respect, being respectful to people, understanding people's backgrounds, ethnicities, religious views. Um, you're going to tread on toes no matter what. You know, you're treading toes in life yeah. on social media. But in prison, like I said earlier, everything's concentrated. Everything's times 10. You're looking at someone, it's times 10. Yeah. You know, it intensifies. Um, you piss someone off, you piss off all of his mates. Yeah. You have a fight, you have a fight with all of his mates. Mm. So they got to uh, keep apart lists in jail once you do start to enter into the gang sort of stuff. If you're having fights with someone, you're kept apart. Then you're on another wing. Mm. Then people are wondering why you're on that wing. You know, you're highlighting yourself all the time. Yeah. So I found it was better to be cutting people hair, cutting people's hair and be in the gym, teaching yeah. people how to use the gym equipment. Yeah. Um, no one wants to beat up their barber. Yeah. And everyone loves the gym. And yeah. I'm, I was the one for many years that was in control of the gym list on yeah. the wing. Yeah. So you've got 100, 120 inmates odd. Trying to be nice to you. You've got 32, <laughs> 32 gym spaces, mate. Yeah. And you got... I, as a gym orderly, you're meant to rotate the gym list, mm. but you hear out the door, Oi, Lou, <laughs> Oi, mate, I'll give you four tuners if you chuck. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Quality. So you get like haggled left, <laughs> yeah, right, and center. Yeah. I would go to people's flaps and, Oi, do you want gym? And you close a flap before they say yes. Say yeah. they were new on the wing. Yeah. And you could tell they didn't have a bit about them. Yeah. You'd say, Do you want gym? What was that? A no. And then you shut the flap. They're like, No, no, I said yes. And then you go up to your mate, you'd be like, you said Jim, and he's like, "Yeah, yeah, cheers, mate." <laughs> so you'd have you'd have a lot of lot of power. Yeah, being a gym orderly in prison. Yeah, it's definitely the best job in prison. And being gym orderly, how many hours did that give you a day? <clears throat> dependent on regime, dependent on if there was a fatality or um, a riot sort of situation, you wouldn't be out at all. But the gym needs cleaning. The staff use the gym. Um, you'd be doing your active IQ and your personal training certificates. So you'd be in the education department. I'd say I'd say I could use a gym four or five times a week. I would choose to use a okay. gym three times. Yeah. And I'd do circuit training on football and the others just to keep my fitness up. Um I was I was always very, very strong, powerful, always the strongest in every jail mm. I've been in, you know, especially after a couple of years. Mm. Um I won all the Christmas competitions and powerlifting meets and stuff. Mm. And I did a thing, I don't think they do it anymore. It's called Baller, the British Association of Weightlifting. So I did my baller certificates as well. So um, yeah, I just knew I was I was a freak. Yeah. I was so fit, loved burpees, loved all the punishing stuff. Um, I got a PEI that I, he's left the service now and we've rekindled. He's a Portland PEI, mm. Mr. Phelps. He's like an adopted father to me. Lovely. He's an incredible human being. So I still keep in contact with him. Every We speak every day. And um, he taught me everything I know about fitness, mindset. And for a one of my mates is going to laugh when he hears this, but he used to make this noise, right? Imagine this happened for two years, right? Every time I lifted. <laughs> every time I repped, I'd hear this screech. Yeah. And he'd do it for two years. Yeah. And I'd be like, fucking hell, Mr. Phelps, what are you doing? You put me off my set. And he just, every time, he'd catch me out and do it again. And then after about two years, I said, mate, why'd you do it every time I'm in the gym? I said, I'm trying to teach you to control your emotions. It was such a weird lesson. Yeah. But he taught me stuff. He's going to laugh when he hears this, yeah. but he taught me so much about myself, 
about reacting to staff. He said, you're going to get people that are going to prod you. Yeah. You're going to get people that are going to say things at the wrong time. He said, but it's about controlling your mindset. You're here to train, so train. And he taught me how to switch off mm. and switch on and stuff like that. So, yeah, the life lessons at the PEIs. I'd keep taking the PEIs. They were like, they were like the hybrid officer. Mm. They were sort of your mate, sort of an officer. Mm. They were hard as fuck. They're all ex special forces. Um, they weren't to be fucked with. No one fucked with a PEI. It's pointless. You don't yeah. know his background. Um, but they 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 sort of are like extended mates. Mm. And um, yeah, they made our time. Mm. So as Jim Orderlies, the PEI seriously looked after us and and um, entering us in competitions and all. Ian Wright used to come in all the time and do the football stuff. Did they? Football behind bars. Um, they had a rugby academy that I was captain of for about three years, which was run by um, the London Irish and Saracens. So they spoke to me about possibly continuing that when I got released. So What position were you? I was a fullback. A fullback? 15, yeah, I was really? quick, yeah. Hundred meter quick, yeah. But um, I wasn't big in prison. I, mm. Well, I was I was muscular. Mm. I wasn't heavy. I was still fit. So the most I ever weighed was actually when I came out, I was probably about one hundred and twenty kilos. But one hundred and twenty kilos, still. F yeah, I still, I still. But I could still, I could still outrun anyone. I could still play football. Mm. I could still sprint 10 k's, sort of that. You know, I'd be up for anything. Mm. I had this mentality that. Mr. Phelps taught me, which is if you're having a competition with someone and they challenge you to press ups, do one more than them. Yeah. So if someone says, How many body weight dips can you do? Mm. One more than you. Mm. And then it's in your head. In your head, you've got to do it. So taught me that sort of stuff. It was really helpful. May sounds like he's he he's been a, an absolute blessing in disguise. Yeah, mate, a true hero. Did um, you did you find that over the time from seventeen to for the six years you were there that you've actually become a really nice person. Yeah. Yeah. Um, understood people. Yeah. Could communicate with anyone. Um, I did suicide intervention for a long time as a trained Samaritan. So I would be the inmate that if someone wanted to commit suicide, I'd be the last person that they spoke to. Yeah. I'd go in that cell, you know, they'd have the blade on the side yeah. and they'd be like, I'm fucking done. Yeah. You know, they might've just been hit with a big one or yeah. they might have, their missus might've left them. They might've lost a family member to illness and not been able to go to a funeral. But yeah, I was the last person that they spoke to many times. And do you know what? When you come out of the cell, it might be two, three in the morning when someone's battling their demons. Mm. The officers, they didn't speak to officers. They don't want they want to speak to a listener. Mm. And um when you come out of that cell, you don't know what he's gonna do. Yeah. And that was a weird feeling. And you know when someone's killed themselves because it goes completely flat, com the atmosphere changes, you know, the people come in and take the body and the police come in, lock the cell off. And um when you see that person in the gym two weeks later, yeah. And he's, you know, he's wearing a vest and he's like, do you know what? Thanks, mate. Thank, thank yeah. All it takes is a little fist bump. Yeah. And a little, it don't even have to acknowledge yeah. it because he doesn't want his boys knowing. But I know that he's going through something and he's got through something. Mm. That's quite powerful. Yeah. Um, to know that you can help someone just by listening. Mm. And, um, you know, whether or not you deserve to have that mental health battle or not because of your demons, because of the crimes we've committed, because of the things we've done, whether or not you deserve it, it might be a punishment. Mm. Um, it's still relevant and present, you know, in that person's life. Mm. And if I'm in that environment, if I choose to help that, that's going to impact my my time. Mm. Um, you know, why be negative about mm. it? So there many, many people in prison are like, go on, kill yourself. You won't do it. Mm. Go on, you deserve to do it. Or stop talking shit. Uh, stop looking for attention, you know, mm. all these different phrases. But when you sit down with that person, 
and you realize he's just got 99 years and he's got three kids and a missus and a mortgage and a business and mm. you think fucking hell i'd probably do the same mm. wow how many prisons were you in in total <laughs> um i'd say six you remember the names uh ashfield Reading, portland dorchester uh dorchester um Ford open prison. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, I think that's it. Out of those, can you rate them? I know you shouldn't rate them like hotels, but could you rate them like the worst of the best? There's a weird. I throw a little curveball in there yeah. first. Ford was the worst amount of drugs, amount of violence I've seen in the Ford open. Yeah, uh, it was seven foot fences, low cat parcels every couple of hours. You know, people in there playing fucking. Um, Nintendo Wii's and fucking all that shit, drinking when the boxing was on and doing sniff and rife, mate. We used to, we had so many phones at one point, right? Genuine, that were on billets, like army billets. We used to leave phones in shit, in shit spots for the officers to find. Mm. And they'd be like, ah, we got you now, you bastards. Because we, yeah, You've got do you know what I mean? We've got, we got a smartphone proper banked up. Yeah. So um, we used to run it like that. Yeah. But I'd say, they had a fire and a riot in Ford and it ruined the whole jail. They took all the gym equipment away and stuff. So that, that created a lot of tension. There was a couple of bad moments in there. Met some of my most, we'll go over them, but some of the most amazing, dangerous, scary, interesting people I've ever met were in Ford, coming to the end of their lifetime. Some I'm still in contact with today. Um, but in terms of uh, harsh environments, it was Portland. Portland is... Portland's the end of the world. It's mm. the place that no one wants to go. It was a punishment prison for gang members as well that were connected to their postcodes in London, so they wouldn't go to London prisons. Um, you'd send them as far south as you could get, mm. get them away from their contacts. The last thing you want is some gang member getting arrested and all of his mates throwing stuff yeah. over the wall. So yeah. they would get you away from Brixton, get you away from Hellmarsh, Wano yeah. Yeah, and all yeah. that, um, Scrubs, places like that. So... When you knew, how do they, so give me an example, you're in a prison, well, they say to you, right, Lou, you're now going down to Portland. Was it totally off the cuff or was it? No, I'll tell you it? what, I went to, um, <clears throat> there was a prison called Ellsbury. It was a life, there was a lifeless section. There was a f uh, zero to four years and then a four to double figures life. And I put a transfer request in Ellsbury and places like that was so, I had such bad names attached yeah. that when I said I wanted to go to Portland because I had a few bods on the wing that were going and we were all we all built quite a good relationship mm. and um, I said I want to go to Portland they said I don't think the governor will take you on you've, you've got double figures mm. usually you go down the catty sort of dispersal route mm. um, he said you can put in a transfer request and write a letter if you want and this officer helped me write this letter to the um, Governor Trent at the time and he accepted me and I had my transfer to Portland and Portland was a prison that I found myself in. It was a Portland that I did my day releases from at first. So I went to cat, the cat CD side mm. towards the end of my sentence before I went to Ford. And, um, it's, it's a, it used to be the, um, bad wing and then they changed it to the enhanced unit. So we all went over that side, all us gym lads from, there was a lot of Southampton bods up there. Mm. And, um, yeah, we went from, from Portland to Beaufort. And then on day release, I became a gym instructor in the community. Mm. 
So tell me then, you're coming out now. Tell me about day release. Tell me about how you're sort of incorporating yourself in a civvy life when you haven't seen anything for six years. You've yeah. Done, you've done your gym. You're getting fit and strong. You're getting, you're, you're cutting people's hair. You're getting a sort of, I guess, a, a way what your route could look like when you come out of Nick. Yeah. So you you think you know what it's going to be like. Yeah. Um, I came out in tip top shape. I was a PT in a uh, leisure center in Weymouth. Mm. And I, sh- I don't know whether I should say this or not, but I was just shagging everything that I saw. Because <laughs> you've been yeah, locked up since mate, yeah. I was catching up. Um, I, had, I had girls coming to visit the gym and I was doing gym inductions. I was training females. And I, I, I was like, fucking hell, these girls love it that I've been to jail. Mm. They were just all over it. Um, some of them were married and you think, I'm, you literally told them I'm a I'm an inmate up the road. Yeah. And next, you know, they do the gym induction. They're wearing normal gym slacks. Come in the next time, they got their nails done, hair done, <laughs> perfume, overpowering. It's giving me a headache. You're there putting them through a treadmill session, yeah. and you're like, Jesus Christ, I can't even see straight. Um. <laughs> so that was quite that was quite an eye opener. I guess I was just catching up. Yeah. But in terms of gym wise, I kept my physical condition. Yeah. Um. I learned a lot being in the community. They give me a mountain bike, and um, one time coming back from from the leisure centre to the back to Portland, mm. um, we actually got stung by the feds. They pinned us up against this wall when they were doing a random drug search. And um, my mate at the time, I won't say who it is, but he had something on him and mm. he swallowed it all. And um, we got back in the nick, and they can't search you over the threshold. The police they've got mm. different powers of arrest. Mm. And um, I made sure that I emptied every pocket, unzipped my bag, squatted about 30 times in front of them, yeah. showed them that I was empty. Yeah. And um, we got back in on the wing after they put us in this dry cell and they put you in a dry cell and they want you to shit yeah. in case you've got a phone up your ass. Yeah. And um, I said to my mate, I said, you got to get that out of you. And he was like, yeah, I know. And there he is in the showers. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> and all these spice wraps came oh, up. Oh, man. So I saved his bacon there because when they jumped out, yeah. Because I said to him, I said... So they jumped out on you after you've been released? Yeah, I'm on day release. Yeah, okay, yeah. I've left the leisure centre. Yeah. I I said to him, I said, I won't say his name. I said, mate, I've seen that car about three times. He said, mate, stop pranging. We're in Portland. I said, mate, I've seen... There's something going on. Yeah. And literally, I was bang on. And when they come for me, I was pulling this officer around and I was looking at him like, now, now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, then I was like, oh yeah, you got us, yeah, yeah. Uh, so <laughs> I knew what they were doing, yeah. just instinct. Um, so there's a few, I've got funny stories like that, but. I just want to roll back a minute. You said when you were in Ford, you were around some faces. <sighs> yeah, some heavy hitters. Who were you around with? Um, I've got too much respect for him. I'm not going to say his yeah. name, um, but he was the Reservoir Dogs murderer, um, style murderer, um, big T. That's all, that's all I'm going to say. Mm. But he was the most intimidating human being I've ever been in front of. Um, traveler boy from Croydon. Hard bastard. Mm. And I've seen him have some proper scraps. Mm. And he had so much respect on from officers. He had so much clout in the community. Mm. Um, you see all these boys, they're wearing, they're wearing 50, 60 grand watches in jail, walking around the wing. Don't give a fuck. Running shit. When I say he's been in Nick, you know, a decade and a half, nearly two decades... And he's probably making three, four times the average monthly salary. Mm. Um, yeah. People coming up, visit him in M5s and Bentleys. and mm. Yeah. And then I've got a mate of mine, Dino, um, connected to the um, UFC lot. 
um, double hard bastard. Mm. And we used to grapple every day. He taught me so much about, you know, BJJ and Muay Thai yeah. and, and little Richie, who's a Muay Thai. Um, there was a lot of fighters, a lot of people that had done some serious, serious, you know, fights and stuff. And they just accepted me and we, we built this like friendship. We're still friends now. Mm. And um, Dino, he's a big person in my life. I call it, try and call him once a week. Um, but he's connected to the Croydon lot. Yeah. And um, yeah, but I wouldn't, so I wouldn't fight Big T and Dino if I had a loaded handgun, I still wouldn't fight them. Mm. That's how hard these people are. Mm. And I remember being in a cell with them, right? You got someone's jabbing gear over there, juice. Mm. There's four phones on the side. This is in Ford mm. in a cell. People doing sniff off the counter. People taking things. Music on and the boxing's on. And there's gin, vodka, everything. And I walk in this cell and you've got Big T there who's topless. He's about 25 stone, six foot three. And um, mm. he beat up Danny Williams. Do you remember the British yeah, heavyweight, yeah, Danny yeah, Williams? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He beat him up when he was 18, mm. sparring. And he was signed by a lad called Duke McKenzie who was a boxing I promoter. Duke McKenzie, yeah. And then he got his life term. But um, I was in this cell with, you had Paddy Doherty, the yeah. Dino, Big T, mm. three of the hardest men in the system. Mm. And they're all fucking cuddling and loving. <laughs> and, yeah, go on, Lou. Hey. And uh, Tony used to say to me, um, you got a body like a Bentley and an engine like a Fiesta. And he used to give you a <laughs> rib shot. <laughs> uh, but no, nah, mate, seriously, like, you know, we've got uh, Beefy who's doing well out here. Um, Tiny Boost has gone on to do music, mm. SM1 crew with gigs. Um, you know, some people that have come out and done really well, mm. really well. Some of these London lot done some done some big birds, yeah. made my sentence look light. Yeah. And now they're out there doing wireless festival and things like that. So main stage mm. with gigs and stuff. So mm. fair play to them. And what's your world now? You're uh, the world's strongest barber. I love that brand, by the <laughs> Thank way. Thank you very much. Good, good for you for doing that. And what's your world since... Is, the last sort of four, five, six years for you out here? Yeah, the main thing from 2019. Yeah. Um, I went back to Nick for a little bit for six months. I think. Hold on, hold on, hold on. You come out in 2016. 2016, yeah. went back. How long were you out for? <clears throat> uh, till 2019. How did you end up going back into Nick? Um, went in an area I wasn't allowed. It was an exclusion zone. I was driving through. I was I was with a girlfriend at the time and she report, I left her. You know, but she reported me to the police and probation said, are you in your exclusion zone? And I said, yeah, I was. And they recalled me. So how long? Um, it was meant to be 28 days. And I stayed in there. I lost everything. I lost my flat. Um, I found out I was a dad at the time as well. Um, lost my car, lost everything for about five, six months. So that was the hardest part of my journey so far because I come out, built myself up. I just started the strongman training, yeah, um, but then I lost it all. Went back to Winchester Prison. So Winchester's for, another for, prison for twenty-eight days. Meant to be. So I got a full recall. So they put me on for twenty-two months recall because that was what was left on my sentence on my parole. And I appealed my decision and got got granted um, a parole hearing. Put my, um, you know, what I done in the community. Never missed an appointment. Never committed another crime. Got a son, and. Yeah, I won my. I was at one o'clock, and by five o'clock, I was out. So that was a big day. I came out of prison in flip flops and a t-shirt, and I remember I was I was fucking ill mentally as well. I lost I lost about four stone in five months, just worrying and panicking, wanting eating, and I got a 
couple of mates that helped me through it on the wing. They're big parts of my life now. Mm. And um, yeah, it was, that was hard. Was that five months harder than harder the previous than six the, years? I'd rather do the full 10 again. And is that just because you had set yourself up? I'd already set myself up. I'd learned what life was. Yeah. Paying bills, you know, working, earning money, driving a car, relationships, etc. It just got ripped away from me. Um, whether or not it was my own fault or not, you know, I was in the area. I was staying at this bird's house. I shouldn't have been. It is what it is. Did you know, you know at the time you shouldn't be? Yeah, in the area. of course. Yeah. So you, you've got a map where you're not allowed. And she just lived on the outskirts. And probation used to tell me, ask me where I lived. And I lied about it. So it is my fault. How did they know you were in there? She told them. So she bubbled you up to them, yeah, phoned but, them up? Yeah. But it is what it is. But I won't hold any anger or, no. or grudges. But do you know what I mean? I, I was, you know, we fell out. I kept calling her. We were arguing on the phone. We were this and that. And then I went to her house and. Um, I was going there to argue with her and she wasn't there and police arrested me. So it was my own fault. Yeah. And that was 2019? 2019. 19. So you did five months then. Come out in December, yeah. And then we had- And then you hit lockdown. Lockdown 2020, March. I just won the strongest man in the UK South. Yeah. That was my first title. And um, we went straight into lockdown. Yeah. And then um, barbering really come into its own. You know, I I had no job. I had no money. My car had been seized. I had no insurance. I had no money to pay for Vodafone. And I brought this little Wi-Fi box, this little SIM card box that you can get Wi-Fi off. And my my phone went mental with people saying, can you fix my hair? Can you help me? Can you this? And I thought to myself, I shouldn't be doing this, but I'm going to die. I'm going to kill myself. I've got nothing. I was sat in this fucking little shitty flat with no curtains and I thought... I need to come out of this somehow. And that was the that was the birth of me. Um, barbering, helping people out, whether or not people got their own views on lockdown, but mine was serious. I had to I had to survive, mate. It was it was tough. People mm. are willing to come to me for a haircut, they can mm. do what they want to do. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day I was gonna die either way. So mm. I'm either gonna go back to prison mm. or I'm gonna kill myself. That was my two options. And the whole of lockdown I just I made I made loads of money just cutting hair. Good for you. And, it, you know, it is wrong. Lockdown was serious, but we've seen it. The politicians having cheese yeah. cheese and wine parties and all that. Yeah, you, you had know? to do what you had to do. I had to do what I had to do, yeah. mate. I had, I, had, I had no opportunity other than that to... No one would give me a job. I couldn't get employed. Um, even the probation were like, yeah, you're unemployable. You know, no one's going to take you on in lockdown with limited jobs yeah. and limited this. I said, listen, I've got to cut hair. If you promise not to recall me, I need to survive. And I was getting 30, 50 quid a trim doing 15 cuts a day so days. I work I work noon tonight as yeah. well and um yeah I became the world's strongest barber not long after that did you who, who come up with the name the world's strongest barber <laughs> it was a videographer that was filming for um one of one of my um strongman who the first person who introduced me to strongman Aaron Page he mm. passed away in lockdown and um it was his videographer that at the time that said he panned the camera into me and said say your name and I went Lewis Packham and he was like oh anything else you got anything else i'm like i don't know he said what do you do i said well i'm a barber he's like you're the strongest barber in the world i said yeah but what if i'm not he went yeah but what if you are yeah and that was it it's stuck quality and we changed the instagram handle and all that and i'll never look back yeah and um yeah the barbering's taken off you know i could i could cut air on a motorway services and be fully booked i've yeah. got an amazing client base and are they are they a client base because they like having chats with you yeah they like talking about life as well as getting my barnet done. 
Yeah, mate, I've got no random bookings. Yeah. I've had my clients since 2016, 17. Yeah. Um, even when I went away, you know, believe it or not, when I was in Winchester on a recall, mm. they come back to me after five months of hair over their ears. <laughs> They're that loyal, mate. Um, yeah, so amazing client base. Each and every client. I remember cutting hair in the early early days of barbering where I needed that person's 20 quid yeah. so I could go and get lunch. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It was that tight. And... um. I was I was so bad with money. I had no concept of money. Didn't understand money. Mm. I was getting two three hundred pound cash a day, and I was spending two three hundred pound cash a day. Yeah, you know what I mean. I was taking on meals, food. trainers, yeah. Ubers, yeah. like yeah. weekend having a drink. I just didn't understand it. Yeah. Um. And then I'd have a you know my bank would tell me that I got a bill coming out tomorrow. I'd be like, oh that's all right. I'm earning four hundred quid yeah. tomorrow. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's how I worked it. And then my money management got better. My client base got bigger. I put my prices up a little bit. And, um, you know, making 500, 600 quid a day, it was, it was life-changing. Yeah, I, I, didn't, I didn't even know that was real. Yeah. You know, my probation were telling me to go and get a, <laughs> go and get a normal job in Timpsons or yeah. B&Q. You'll be all right. Yeah. All right. Well, okay, what else do I do? All right, you need to go and live in this shared accommodation. Mm. I said, yeah, but I don't want to. I want to live in my own flat. Mm. And then my mapper, my public protection agency that look after you they dropped my mapper to low risk and i was able to go and live on my own mm. and um yeah i haven't looked back mate i just did it all myself um some of the cars i've had um you know i spend good money on car a month because i'm always driving to strongman yeah um i live in good nice places not massive houses or anything just nice places i'm you know I live with my missus now she's an amazing human being she's she's the biggest change in my life so What's her uh, name? Hannah. Big give shout her, out to Hannah. Shout out to Hannah. <clears throat> yeah. Has she been by your side for how long? Uh, nearly three years now. Quality. She's been the biggest, biggest emotional um, and like support. Yeah. The rock. The, oh, mate, yeah. mental. I never knew a human being existed like yeah, it. So yeah. she does my food. She's there for me and emotional turmoils, ups and downs, and helps with the dog that we've got, mm. you know, Big Z. Um, she's an amazing human being. I didn't mm. know people like that existed. Yeah. And uh, my track record with females isn't great. We haven't got time to go over that. But <laughs> um, part two, yeah, she's uh, she's an incredible, inspirational human yeah. being. And um, she lost her dad in lockdown through suicide. So um, you know the strength that I. She's inspiring. Yeah. She inspires me, mm. and she doesn't know that yet. But she's mm. going to hear this. She's but it, yeah. she inspires me. She's she's the strength that she's gained from losing the most important person in our life is is absolutely incredible. So They're lovely words, mate. She's Hannah. an amazing human. Yeah. That's quality. What's it like being one of the most strongest men on the planet? <laughs> wow. There's some big boys ahead of There's me. There's some big boys ahead of you. But, but I'm on the way. You are yeah. on the way. Like, what's that feeling like? Um, I'm fortunate enough to train with one of the strongest men on the planet, um, Adam Bishop. To be considered one of the strongest men in the UK... Yeah. We'll start with that because mm. I don't want to disrespect the sport. Mm. There's some absolute freaks out there. Mm. Um, to walk into a room, a gym, a restaurant, a Tesco's, you know, and you know that you're the strongest human being there mm. is very, very powerful, weird feeling. Yeah. Um, even some big lumps, you know, strength isn't always size. Yeah. I know that I'm stronger than any human being in this room or that supermarket or... I was at um, 
in the country, know. mate. Well, one <laughs> of, yeah. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Plunk yourself in the middle of the country, go, oh, no, I'm going to be in one of the top three strongest men in yeah, the country. Yeah, yeah, I know what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, it's a weird feeling. I know it all comes down to that competition and the events have to go your way. Mm. But, yeah, I mean, on my day, I'll, I'll take on anyone. Give me an example of some sort of weight you're throwing around, deadlifting and, and squatting. Yeah, d- um, we don't squat as much. Um, log press, you know, I, I won log press at UK Strongest Man. I'd say I've got the strongest shoulders in the UK overhead. I've always had strong shoulders. The weight varies. You know, we do log for reps up to 180 kilos um, on a log. Um, I'm good for 200 this year. There's only people the likes of Tom Stoltman, um, sorry, Luke Stoltman, Tom Stoltman, Eddie Hall. Yeah. You know, people like that that are in the 200 club. Zadruna Savickas. Um, so there's about 20 people in, in history that so have done. So you're pressing 200 kgs above your head? Yeah, so I could... Oh uh, seated press Seated press is my strongest. My triceps are powerful, but I, I could press... It, it depends because we work in training blocks mm. where we peak and, you know, food, etc. So it's hard to say how strong you are. Mm. Um I won the bench press at Arnold's Festival this year for 100 kilos bench press in a minute with 50 reps. So um, <laughs> Eddie Hall cool, actually Eddie Hall actually did about 44. Yeah. So I beat him on that day. Um, it was only a little side competition thing. But yeah, I'd say for reps, um, for bench press for reps and stuff, I'm one of the strongest people. Do you know what planet. I find weird? I find weird like you can have like the Olympics where you've got the fastest man in the world and he earns millions and the, yeah. the whole world is watching. And then you've got the strongest man in the world it's on telly and there's like 100 people floating around watching it. I found it. No, like, so that's the world's strongest man isn't a ticketed event. It's non-ticketed. No, non-ticketed. Yeah. So where, do, where, where, where are the ticketed events where people can go to and get a proper spectacle? Giants Live are the where, big boys. Giants Live, yeah, okay. They're the big boys. They own all the... Um, Britain's Strongest Man, Europe's Strongest Man, and a world tour. And where's where's the one in Britain? Britain's at Sheffield, Utilita. Okay. I, I compete in Ultimate Strongman, which is the UK's and English Strongest Man. So yep. that's a, um, usually at football grounds or big... We're doing it at Motor Point Arena this year in May. Okay. Tickets are available on Eventbrite. Yeah. Um, but Giants Live is the, is the pinnacle of the sport. Prize money, meet and greets, fans, 10,000-seater stadiums. Um, that's where you get the That's the big guns. The Everyone, okay, quality. Um, what sort of wedge can you earn in that as being, what sort of money is someone picking up if they're winning the top prize there? It's hard to say. It, it varies anywhere from 30 to 40 grand to 100 and something grand now, I think, at the mm. um, Rogue Invitational, which is in America. What, the um, Rogue clothing brand, the training brand? Rogue, yeah, the CrossFit. Yeah, CrossFit. They do stuff. a massive okay. um, strongman. It's called the Rogue Invitational. That's, you know, I'm years away from that, but... Um, World's Strongest Man is in America yeah. at the moment since lockdown. The contract's owned. It's a non-ticketed event, but you can go and... That's why when you watch it on TV, it looks like there's only a few people there. Yeah. They don't have a stadium because you need to remember what you see on TV for a couple of hours mm. is filmed over five yeah, or six days. Up, yeah. You can't have people... Yeah. You, try and, you try and contain people the for five <laughs> days. So that's why it doesn't work. Yeah. So there is talks of, you know... it becoming something one day like a arena mm. but it's pointless because the show is over five days how old are you i'm 29 29 what age what age is everyone saying that you're going to be peak strength <clears throat> um i'd say the strength comes in your 30s but i think i think i'll be britain's strongest man as in giants live britain's strongest man within the next three years 
That's my goal. Man, that's quality, mate. Yeah. <laughs> it's quality. <laughs> so I've got to win England's strongest man this year. Yeah. I, I will be the strongest man in England this year and I'm going to win that title. So I missed out on four four or five points last year. I made a couple of errors and that was my second show. So I'm going to be England's strongest man this year. And when is that? That is in August. England's Whereabouts? Strong. That is at um, Halliwell Jones Stadium in Wigan. Okay. So that's a that's a nice stadium actually. We yeah. did that last year. I podiumed again, but I kept manifesting podium. Yeah. I believe in putting things out in the universe. Yeah. And I kept saying podium, podium, podium. Now it's gold. First. Yeah, first. Yeah, there's no, no excuses. Yeah. I'm training so hard. I work two days a week and yeah. I train with Adam Bishop for the rest. Yeah. He's a so, strong boy, isn't he? He's a he's a fucking animal, mate. Yeah. yeah. So strongest deadlifter on the planet. So Is he the strongest deadlifter? Well, I mean there's there's three or four guys yeah. that are going for five oh five. Um, he was unfortunate enough to tear his tricep off before the last deadlift champs. But what I watch... So him, he's pulling 505 well, kg? Well, in theory, you know, they've got to reach that peak yet. But he'll pull, you know, they'll pull 1,000 pounds, so 460-odd kilos. They'll, you know, they'll peak towards 480, 500 kilos. The whole Eddie Hall deadlift thing, Yeah, Eddie was a phenom. You know, there's only... Eddie, Eddie Hall was the Lionel Messi yeah. of strongman. You can't become Eddie Hall, yeah. um, as you saw in the videos and his documentary. Mm. He nearly killed himself mm. doing it. You know, he put himself through so much. Stress. You know, are people mm. able and capable mindset and physically to put themselves through that much strain? No. Thing is, with Bish, he's a phenomenal technical lifter, mm. which cancels out that necessity to be super large. You know, yeah. because what he makes up in technique doesn't need to obtain yeah. from so he's a professional he's the strongest man in britain um i'm i'm lucky enough to train with him all week multiple sessions so after here i'll be going down to his and training and where's he training down in guildford sorry Guildford, okay <clears throat> um so yeah i've cancelled my week and i work two to three days a week and the rest is training and yeah. food and i've done that so i can match his schedule and you know i lose out on a lot of money but yeah. it's an investment in myself. Mm. You want to become the best. You have to train with the best. You've got to follow the best. You've got to eat like the best, train like the best. So yeah. I don't eat like him yet. And you've got to visualize that you're going to Visualize, mate. Yeah, you know, I'm in, I'm in training. You know, watching him, the lifts that he's done in training, and then going to Sheffield Arena about three weeks ago, mm. which, you know, everyone knows now because it's on social mm. media. Watching him do what he does in training mm. and not miss a beat and winning that, I'd say it's the second most important um, trophy in the in the world. Mm. So Britain's strongest man is massive. What are you weighing in today? Stones. Uh, um, I don't know. One hundred and twenty-eight kilos. One hundred and twenty-six kilos. Stone. Twenty. Twenty odd. Yeah. Twenty and a half. Um, What's the biggest you've gone up to? Uh, Twenty-three. Yeah, but I don't need to be heavy. Yeah. I, I work myself on moving, fitness, and speed. Um, one of the strongest men in the world mm. and of our generation mm. is called Alexei Novikov. And he's twenty stone, six foot. Where's he from? Ukraine. Ukraine. And he's a he's a freak. I don't think he's been off the podium since he's competed. So how old is he? He's twenty seven now. Twenty seven. Okay. And he won it in he won World Strongest Man in twenty twenty. So this whole size thing. Can he relevant. can he earn a full on proper living being the world's strongest man? So you can monetize like Eddie Hall's done. Yeah. And become a personality. Yeah. TV shows, YouTube views. Mm. You market yourself correctly, mm. yes. Alexei is Ukrainian, doesn't speak very well English, mm. um, or very good English. I went Ukrainian, no? <laughs> um, it doesn't speak very good English, yeah. 
but he's on the podium every time. So yeah. every time he steps out, he's taken minimum 30, 40 grand. So. This is where I think your brand, the world's strongest barber, could really come into play. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because you speak very well. Thank you. You speak well. You come across well. You're super strong. You're very humble with it, you know, which is really quite nice to hear. Yeah. Give me an example of your daily food. Yeah, this is a the most annoying question I get. Um, <laughs> my food, being a barber, yeah. is very random. I eat snacks, chocolate. Um, I have no diet. I have no structured diet. Um, I'm not actually a big eater. As many people, many even my missus believes that she can beat me in, in an eating contest. Mm. But I'll be eating up until 11, 12 at night. Okay. You know, packs of biscuits. How many calories? I'd say... You're banging in a day. On a good day, 9,000 minimum. Wow, okay. On a rubbish day at the barber shop, yeah. three thousand. Right, okay. Do you know what I mean? Like a normal bod. Yeah, it's three like, thousand, but you're banging up to nine thousand when you're concentrating. When you got thirty haircuts to do, yeah, and I'm like you know, someone Josh will tell you, but when I'm there till nine, ten o'clock at night, mm. and I've eaten a meal deal and a protein shake, yeah. that's genuine. Yeah, I've been on my feet since half seven in the morning. I take my work very seriously, mm. and I utilise every single conversation with every client whether it's the first haircut in the day or the last one that client's getting the maximum of my ability yep. and i've used that from the wing when i used to cut hair you might be a double murderer you might be ex-footballer you yep. might be homeless no matter who you are when your ass sits in my chair mm. me and you have this connection that you know is different to yep. other, other barbers so i believe that's why i'm successful as a yep. barber because the way I connect with the client. Yeah. And I always taught myself that talk the person back. Don't depend on the haircut. Yeah. There's a lot of good barbers out there. Yeah. They don't talk. They're mm. silent. So if you can talk your client back, mm. you know, I leave them on a cliffhanger. They want to hear the rest <laughs> of the story. So that's the way I work it. What's 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 the future hold for you, Lou? <sighs> um, I'm, I'm a big believer that you don't know. Um, it can twist and turn at any point. I want a successful family life. Um, like I mentioned earlier, I've got a little boy that I've been trying to see for four years. So that's been a tough one, um, you know. But I want to have a successful family life. I want to prove myself as a father. I want to be the strongest man in the country. And I also want to spread awareness through the school talks and college talks that I do which we're starting to gain a lot of momentum now. I go into schools and colleges and I really push my story onto these kids and hopefully inspire at least one or two of them that the gang pathway or the county lines or whatever whatever decision that your brother's made or your cousins have mm. made, you know, in the inner city areas, mm. um, it's not the way. Trust me, prison's not the way. So spreading awareness through that, which is something that I love doing. Mm. Um, I've been in a couple of schools and a couple of colleges now and it's been... That's been the most rewarding um, feeling that I've ever had talking in front of, you know, we've done one that was like over 200 students and then you're doing a Q&A for a couple of hours as well. And that's the most rewarding thing that yeah. I've done yet. So hopefully passing down my mistakes and experience, you know, it's invaluable. What I've been through is invaluable to these fresh ears and eyes. You know, you can't, you don't want this kid to make those mistakes just because he's angry at something yeah. or he's had a certain life or a certain father role or, you know, lack of father role. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And it's very easy, especially I speak from a boy's perspective. It's very easy for a boy to make a huge mistake and it, it will ruin the rest of your life if you let it. It will ruin your financial life. It will ruin your 
chances of getting a job if you haven't got a business mindset or a savvy mindset mm. you know it can really destroy you for the rest of your life mm. and you know for these lads these young teenagers that are angry going to house parties selling drugs you know online on snapchat doing things that they shouldn't be doing mm. you know it's, it's about spreading awareness so mm. hopefully over the next decade because the last one's been pretty shit mm. the next one i want it to be spreading positive positive yeah. you know mental health young minds reaching everything you know community projects and street talks and stuff like that so that'll be something that i can take the world's strongest barber brand yeah and become you know as in like as big as it can yeah like you say there lou just before we finish up how's your relationship been like with your mum yeah so me and my mum speak every day um i made a point of speaking to her every day on the phone while i was away and i made a point of speaking to her every day when i was released and um anything my mum needs i would try and give to her she won't ask for anything mm. and if i ask her if she needs anything she, she always says no <laughs> um don't be so stupid yeah. i say mum do you realize what yeah. i put you through yeah you know all those visits all those tears all those clothes parcels all that money you sent you know people don't realize your mum's there yeah when your mum's there for you and it sounds bad because the mums are always the ones that stick stick around through the yeah. shit do yeah. you know what i mean um, everyone else, you know, brothers, sisters, friends, mm. they sort of pop in and mm. out. But the mum's the most consistent person for me personally. Mm. And for her not to want anything, you know, is testament to my stepdad, you know, he's an incredible human being. Yeah. But she doesn't ask for anything. Yeah. But I'll always be for there, be there for her and I'll always provide. So I'm hoping that one day this can take off and you can monetize passively and yeah. have, you know, I can send her on some nice yeah. cruise ship somewhere, a nice island somewhere and just let her switch off for a bit and take the stress away. Mm. That'd be nice she for her. She gone through a lot of stress. Gone through hell, mate. What's, uh, have you got one last word to your mum? Uh, to my mum, uh, I love you. Thank you for everything. Thank you for supporting me. And uh, I promise to make a name for myself in the right way quality Lou I've really really enjoyed this episode and I want to thank you for your honesty that's okay yeah, that's what I'm here for yeah you know it's about you get one opportunity to speak sometimes and you have to just be yourself yeah bear it all I think you're on a really good path mate stay on that straight and narrow keep doing the air cuts keep doing the gym smashing it and you will be the strongest man in this planet on the <laughs> planet and in this country quality thank you good man cheers, cheers, Lou. cheers mate nice one